You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. It's the Bedroom Beethoven Podcast. Whoa, you just blew my mind because nobody talks about that shit. <laughs> Thank you for this. Like, I was looking forward to this chat, man. I love your interviews. Thank you for what you're doing. Like, it's excellent. And um, people can continue to learn the stories of, the, of these uh, bedroom Beethoven's. Um, how did you find out about this? Are you? Oh, my God. Having something like this to shed light on, on, on us is amazing. Like, we really need this documentation. So people like you are definitely needed. (laughs) Welcome, people of Earth, to episode 166 of the podcast. My guest this week is... Yeah, this is Adam Mori, a.k.a. B. Bravo. I'm a music producer, musician, collabs with people like Riva DeVito, um, like R&B music. Just did a, an album uh, featuring Nico Fashoa from the Bay, Sally Green, Chuck English from the Cool Kids. Um, so yeah, lo- lots of different folks. Episode 166 puts me face-to-face with B. Bravo, who returns with his signature feature funk vibes, infectiously soulful grooves, and talkbox excursions. Visions is the new album, who sees the multifaceted artist take the classic West Coast into outer space. Lots to talk about, especially since he has stories and gems, having toured throughout the U.S., Latin America, Europe, and Asia, and has played everywhere from the low-end theory, boiler room, and selection. It's just another Cali good time. But before we get into it, to support the channel, tell a friend, let's grow this puppy, let's blow it up. I intentionally keep it as ad-free as possible, and to do that, I need to cover server fees and monthly costs, so I set up a Patreon at patreon.com slash bedroombeethovens. It's a really cool platform where you can give a few bucks, and in turn, I'm going to reward you. You know, you show me love, I show you love, give a little, get a little, hear episodes early, ad-free, and shout-outs, and it's just a good community over there. It keeps me going. You know? Also, I fully get that you might need a tank of gas more than you need to support a podcast. So, if all you do is enjoy this on your commute to work or, you know, leave a comment on a, on a YouTube episode, I'm super appreciative. BedroomBeethovens.com is the website. Feel free to poke around. And as we head into fall, we're getting into the fall, right? August, September, we're getting there. I'm going to keep the content coming as best I can. Never be shy to drop me a hello, whether it's 
via email or social media. But without further ado, Be Bravo is here. And and you grew up in uh, Monterey, is that how you pronounce it? Monterey, California. Yeah, I'm. Uh, that's where I was born. Um, lived in Seaside, which is right next door. Uh, went to Monterey High School, and uh, yeah, moved up to San Francisco after high school for college, and uh, was there for like 14 years, and then came down to LA. After that. The center of the sardine packing industry. Exactly. Yeah, Monterey Bay. Um, yeah, back in the day, that was. Uh, they still have all the old canneries there. Cannery Row is like it's pretty cool. A lot of history there. Monterey was actually the first capital of California. I didn't know that. I didn't know that before Sacramento. Before before they discovered gold, it was Monterey because it has the, the perfect bay, like for for ships to to, to dock. Well, I mean, so the, the history there is pretty rich, but but why that why that area? Because like I you know I do want to hear about your dad because he was actually from a. Uh, a really poor family in Japan. So he basically came to the States with nothing in the late seventies. He, uh, yeah, he came from Japan and was his, both of his parents died when he was really young. Um, he didn't really know his dad at all. He was, his dad was like gangster kind of just up to no good tangled up with the Yakuza and all that stuff. And yeah, so he was super poor and like raised by his older sister and just always wanted to kind of make a better life for himself. Came out to the to, to the U.S. for college um, to study at the Monterey Institute of International Studies, which is a famous um, school there in, in, in Monterey. Um, so he kind of defied his older sister. It was like, no, don't leave. You'll never be anything. You know, stay in Japan and just like work a salary job. And he was just like, nah, I got to, you know, just find find more in life, I guess. And, um, so yeah, he made the, saved up the money and I think got some money from her and, and applied for scholarships and and got accepted and then flew to, to the States in 1979. And then, yeah, landed, landed in LA by himself. (laughs) <laughs> wow. So w- when your dad came here in the late 70s, he was already a lover of the saxophone and enamored with American jazz. But because, you know, Japan is no slouch in the jazz right. department, you know, they might not have Art Pepper and Miles Davis, but that scene was big too. Yeah, I mean, it was huge. I mean, he was, you know, he always tells me, oh, when I was in college, you know, he was just, he just loved jazz and records and Miles Davis and John Coltrane and all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, the scene there was, you know, they've always been huge fans there. So, he was, you know, just part of that, like in, in, in those days, like, I guess, 60s and 70s. So, yeah, that was that was huge for him. And that's that that all got passed on to me. So if it, if it did get passed down to you, knowing that the visits to his office and listening to jazz with you rubbed off on you for a lifetime, what does he think about your music career? He's always been super supportive. He's always been the one that was like, you know, follow your dreams and do what you want to do and take chances. And, you know, you got to jump off the cliff, you know, as he would always say. So he's always been supportive. Like when I was, when I first released, you know, kind of my, my first music, he was, he wasn't quite sure what to, to make of it because, you know, it was not, not his style. So when you went, so when you come home 
in the fourth grade with like a Dr. Dre album. There's no, they don't step in. There's no disappointment. They kind of give you the fluidity to kind of listen to what you want. No, not at all, man. (laughs) Completely opposite. My mom actually cried. (laughs) She she heard me playing it in the room and came in and was like, what the hell is this? And like shut it off immediately and pulled out the CD and saw the giant pot leaf on the cover of the CD. And I had no idea what the leaf was. I thought it was like a maple leaf. And because the whole CD is just a big chronic leaf. And um, yeah, she cried. And I didn't really understand. Like, obviously, I knew she was disappointed. And like, I I guess I knew, I know she didn't like some of the cuss words and stuff. But like, I didn't know everything they were talking about. I was 10 years old, you know. And I just knew that like, these were the songs that were like on MTV and stuff. And these were the songs that we liked at school you know and so yeah she made me take it back and i i had to take the cd back to the record store and then i I exchanged it for um michael jackson dangerous not a bad trade-off not bad so so when you're going to like a a a a jazz festival maybe that the intent was to bring you there maybe so you can get turned on to different music like hey maybe if i introduce him to tower of power he'll get away from that dr dre i mean i I don't know my dad I don't recall my dad ever being like super, you know, super disappointed that I'd like Dr. Dre. I think, I don't even think he really knew what, what it was we're listening to, but, but like at the same time, he knew I liked Miles Davis and I liked saxophone. And like around that time I was just starting to play clarinet and like, you know, in hopes to, to learn saxophone. And so he knew I liked that music. Like I remember he had the Miles Davis do, do, I think it's do bop um, album too. So like I would listen to that and I remember him being like, he's like, Oh, you like this? I'm like, yeah, it's cool, you know? And that was like the Miles Davis like smooth jazz album. Um, but you know, that was also this is all the stuff that was out in like nineteen ninety-two. And so we would just go to the jazz festival because it was in town and you know, modern jazz festival, obviously, like world famous. And it was every year. So we would we would just go because it was fun and like obviously the music was awesome and so yeah, I remember seeing I remember seeing Tower of Power there, and that was like one of the first times I really saw like uh, just funk music, and I just remember seeing what it did to people, and people were just dancing like I'd never people didn't dance at the jazz festival. You just people sat in their seats, you know, you watch and then you clap. But when Tower of Power, when Tower of Power played, people were out of their seats just dancing, and it was I just I remember just being in awe to, that like. You know, just the power of the music and just, just, I remember like my face was all screwed up, just like, Ugh, this is nasty. Like the, the stuff these guys are playing, it was just like unreal. Is that, is that kind of the inspiration of Bionics? Cause that's like a nine ten piece band. Tower of Power is a nine ten piece band. You know, that can't be a coincidence. I mean, you know, Bionics from, from the Bay Area, Tower of Power from Oakland. There's definitely some influence there. I don't think it was like a conscious effort. I think it was more just like, just what we had, just just the 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 people that we knew then, and Bion- well, actually, so Bionics sort of became Bionics from a salsa band. So that's the roots of you know they already had a bunch of guys like they had the horns, they had guitar, they you know salsa bands are big. So uh, Bionics originally was like the hip hop offshoot of a salsa band called Malafama. So so yeah, sort of there, but definitely, you know, definitely some connection with the, the 
barrier connection and just the just the power of having a big group you know which i miss i miss playing in bands like that Yeah, if you if you started jamming with them in in the early two thousands, it's I, I almost want to say happy twentieth anniversary. It's been about been about twenty years, right? Thank you. Yeah, they actually just did the twenty year reunion last in in uh, in June. I wasn't able to make it, unfortunately. And it's really crazy, you know. I've done you know one hundred and sixty six episodes of this podcast. I've heard stories week after week about how a particular artist gets attached to music, you know the thing they want to do forever. You know, I, I have a seven year old daughter and I'm like, you know, if I take her to like a Dua Lipa concert, will that transform her forever? But then it's like, Oh, you know, if a TV commercial comes on and there's a kid playing for Elise and her eyes get wide and she gets determined to read sheet music. I feel like as a parent, you just won the lottery because something out of your control just connected with your kid and they instinctively learned yeah. what they wanted to off a television commercial. The worst thing you would want is to be like, here, learn this, learn this, learn, learn piano, learn violin. And they're like, nah, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? If for them, for them to find it on their own, that's the ultimate blessing. If your father's whole motivation was to come here to give you a better life. And as you have your own kids, I'm sure you're giving them a better childhood than the one you had, which is the way it should be. I'm wondering like, you know, if you want them to follow in your footsteps, a theory of funk is like funk music was originally made by people in the struggle, whether it would be race, economics, or class. So if you give them too many tablets or HDTVs or four-star dinners, maybe they won't be able to identify with the funk. <laughs> totally, man. Yeah. I mean, my kids definitely are not getting four-star <laughs> dinners unless it's the one I'm cooking. So, <laughs> or my wife. <laughs> so yeah, well, no, we stay away from the tablets. We stay away from it's a tough, it's kind of a tough environment to be in. Um, I don't know. It's, it's a crazy time to be raising kids for sure. But, um, I, I try to just do kind of what my parents did with, with us. Like, I mean, we begged for a Nintendo, you know, and we hated my parents cause they refused to get us one, but I see why they didn't want to, you know, like as a parent now I get it, you know, they're just like, go play outside. Or go to your friend's house if you want to play Nintendo, and that's kind of the same way they way. That's the same way that we kind of do. You know, that's our approach with like tablets and technology and stuff. It's like you don't need this. You know, it's like yeah, you want you want to sure, but you don't need it. Like in a pinch, you know, on a long road trip, maybe at the at you know last resort. Like okay, here, you know, watch a little bit, but that my. My, the, my my daughters are definitely not the ones at the supermarket, like sitting in the chair, sitting in the shopping cart, you know, on the phone. Like, no, they're picking stuff out with me and we're talking about what we see, you know, because I like everything's an educational experience for for them. You know, that's the way I see it. It's like it's always an opportunity to be talking about something or learning something. I, I, I just I don't get not to like judge anybody's way of parenting, but. You know, it's, I just don't see it as like, oh, I need to like keep you entertained or you need to be, keep, you know, you need to stay entertained. Like we don't go to a restaurant and just like, here, look at the phone. It's like, no, let's talk. Like let's, or if we have nothing to talk about, we'll just sit and look at each other and 
you know, eat your, like, <laughs> eat your food. <laughs> that kind of goes back to what you were talking about, you know, when you went to San Francisco and you're in TV and radio, you get a, you get a degree in broadcasting, which is, you know, does that even degree even translate into any value that you can use? Cause that, it seems like it's more TV than radio, right? So in the, t- in the broadcasting department, it's broken down. So I actually um, majored in audio production in the, in the TV and broadcasting department. So, I mean, I use stuff I learned every single day <laughs> to this day which is which is cool like i um i'm feel like i'm fortunate not a lot of people i guess can say that about their college education i I, you know i still think back to stuff i learned from um professor john barsodi shout out to to barsodi yeah and before there were podcasts like mine there were there were programs at college like pre-podcasting shows like the funkiness continues (laughs) and uh i want to know Give me an example of a funk bomb that would get a good reaction. A funk bomb? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, uh, theme from the black hole, like Parliament, or like, you know, obviously more bounce of the ounce or atomic dog or stuff like that. Like the huge hand claps and like the Moog, the Moog, like Bernie Whirl bass line. Those, those were the big funk bombs. Well, if there's a relationship between space and funk music, and as someone who's inspired by the stars, we recently, because of NASA's James Webb Space Telescope just a few weeks ago, we were presented with the deepest, clearest infrared image of the universe ever produced. What do you, th- what do you think of stuff like that? Because if we keep getting newer and clear images of space, the stars and planets, is that just going to make it harder to funk? Because we draw inspiration from the unknown, you know, the big, vast mysterious void in the sky those images that we're seeing are four billion years old or something like that because they were we're looking at the light that's traveled four billion light years and those are the images that we're seeing so we're almost looking at the origin of our planet I, i believe that's what it is so we're looking back into time, four billion light years away. The more you find, the more there still is that's still unknown. It just makes you think, you know, about the the possibilities that are still out there. I mean, we still we we know a fraction of what we can even think that there is to know. So. To me, it's the more we find out, the still it it still just feeds your hunger to find out more. So I don't think discovering more is like I don't think we're going to get to the point where like okay, we know we know everything now. There's nothing left. There is no unknown. You know, even on our planet, I mean, look at the ocean. We're we've we've explored what is it less than. 10%, I don't know, it's something very low. They say it's like 2% or something of the actual ocean. So it's a minuscule, and this is on our planet, which... <laughs> so when you're, a, when you're working at a tech company and all that, is there any point where you're thinking about music second and being a tech guru in Silicon Valley first? Working in the tech industry was something that sort of just came by chance. I was just like in need of a job after college and broke, you know, like everybody, and... 
hooked up with this tech te- temp agency and they got me a job at, at this tech company and I was just happy to have money to pay my bills. <laughs> so, um, and luckily I was able to, you know, kind of fake my way into getting hired permanently and like actually having a good salary, you know, a decent salary. That was always, it was always a means just for me to, to be able to live and to be able to do music without having the stress of paying my bills um, with trying to, you know, make money from music. And so that freed up a lot of stress and like creative, it just unlocked a lot of creative freedom because I would just work nine to five during the day and come home and, you know, get straight to it and work all night or go gig or go DJ or whatever till, you know, two, three in the morning, come back, get up early, do it all over again. And then, but it was actually through my job there, I met um, Paul Salva. And so you know, he hired me because in my resume, I had put that I was, you know, interested in music and stuff like that. And so he's like, yeah, man, I just, I hired you because you were different from the other, other candidates because I wanted to work with somebody who I thought was interesting and, and had similar interests um, with me. And so, you know, through meeting him opened, you know, he, when he started the Fright Night label that, and I wanted to put out, put out my first releases like that, that just that that really started my entire career as like a solo artist. So Salva, he's getting placement with Aesop Ferg and Freddie Gibbs and all that. And there's a plaque in your studio that you, that you hang on the wall. Did you have a hand in that? <laughs> I had a hang in, I had a hand in hanging it on the wall, um, but <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a hand in creating the music or anything like that. No, so we we share a studio space, so. It was sitting on, he had it just sitting on the floor. I'm like, man, you got to put this thing up, bro. Let's, let me, let me, <laughs> let's, let's display this baby. You're the only one of us with a gold record. So let's, let's put it up. Um, well, I had an episode with DiBiase a few weeks back and he was telling me about the low end theory days in California. And, uh, nice. Devin, who was his roommate at the time. And you guys know each other. For sure. I, I didn't know they were roommates. That's cool. Yeah, Devin's my boy, man. DiBiase too. We, we all go, we all go back to those days for sure. When we're all just like coming up in the, in the beat, the beat world. Um, yeah, good people, definitely good folks. Haven't haven't talked to either one in a little while, but you know, I'm sure it'll be just like it was when we when we left off. Well, back back in those times, you know, around you know early 2010s that we're discussing. Dame Funk insisted that he want he wanted Funk to become respected again, and journalists were including your name with that task to bring Funk back to the airwaves. Like, if there is a Funk resurgence, they gave you a percentage of that daunting task. That had to have been kind of heavy. That that's a responsibility you probably didn't even ask for. Yeah, no, I mean, no, definitely not. I, yeah, that was never my intention uh, with creating music. You know, I never set out to be like the funk guy or, you know, I, I never set out to be like a funk musician or a modern funk or something. I was just, I was just doing what I do and I was just making the music that I'd like to make. And, you know, big shout out to Dame Funk for sure. And, you know, he's always supported me and um, been, you know, super cool guy and still supports me to this day. Um, and so definitely big shout out to him for everything he's done for the funk movement. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm honored to be mentioned by journalists and having some role in, um, the like 
modern funk movement for sure. Um, and I think it's, I think it's cool that it sort of just came like organically, you know, I never, you know, it's people love to, to put people in certain genres and, and just for, for ease of, you know, compartmentalizing people and sounds and stuff. And so, yeah, it's, it's an honor to be thought of in that way and to be part of a movement like that. And I definitely like take pride in that. And I, you know, shout out to all the fellow modern funk folks as well. Um, so yeah, it's cool. I'm hopefully I'm living up to the task that they bestowed upon me. At the at the Red Bull Music Academy, James Pants asked you a very specific question in 2012. Uh, where do you see funk heading in the next decade? And it's been a decade. So oh. I wanted to read you your answer, and you tell me how right you were. Okay, cool. <laughs> All right. Uh, you said, <laughs> I see funk expanding and mutating into many different genres. The recent modern funk thing has been awesome. And it's great to hear artists worldwide doing really cool things with it, but I see it transcending into electronic music and dance music even further, different tempos and sounds using technology. Wow, that's a pretty pretty good answer. Good job. Good job, mate. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, well, yeah, I mean, just look at what we're hearing now. I mean, look at the biggest songs of the last couple of years, 24 Karat Magic, um, Dua Lipa, like... um, you know, Uptown Funk, like Silk Sonic, look at Anderson Pack, look at um you know, it's it's right there. All the all the big not all the big, but a lot of big pop songs and electronic songs, they're all they got the funk back in them. So if you have a you know funk song but you add a four on the floor beat, does it then become disco or is it still funk just with a disco beat? Like where one genre ends and another begins, I'm curious about what you would consider leaving the realm of funk and becoming another genre. I don't know. That's a little tricky. I think it's it's funny because I, I remember um, once in a while people ask me, you know, what are the elements of a funk song? And it's like the the easy kind of surface answer is like, oh, the big claps and like the bass line and the, the like guitar or, or, you know, you break it down into the individual instruments and sound. But I think it goes a lot deeper than that. I think it's a feeling that makes something funky. know because like i remember back when one of my when i had first done my the song computer love computer love my, my version not the zap version and i had i played it at a at a gig and the club owner came up to me and he's like yo what is this man that's the funk right there and it had never occurred to me that that song was funky like that's a slow halftime groove song with there's no hand claps, there's no guitar, there's, you know, it's more of a smooth song to me. And like, I, I, to me, that I guess, yeah, I guess it is funky, but what makes it funky is the feeling. And so it's sort of a tricky question to answer. 
you know, it's if you look at it just instrumentally, like, yeah, there's, you know, you have your elements of your disco, your four on the floor, your like, you know, certain instrumentation, the, the like wah wah guitars and funk guitars and stuff like that. Like, yeah, that's your like disco formula. Um, but I don't know what, what makes things funky or just the way it makes your body move and just the way it makes you feel, you know, it makes you feel good. It makes you just kind of go, ugh. <laughs> so when you, when you're jamming with George Clinton, was that, did you get that feeling immediately or do you guys have to warm up to that feeling? Uh, we were on Ricky Vincent's show, Dr. Ricky Vincent, um, the funk, he had a funk show. I don't know if, does he still have it? Maybe he does. Um, and George was there with Thumposaurus Rex, his bass player. And so he came in the studio when we were playing and shook all our hands. And um, yeah, that was more of a just kind of free for all <laughs> kind of a just, it was kind of crazy to be honest. But I mean, you know, I guess if you hear any stories from the George Clinton parliament days, that's, that's how things were just kind of organized mayhem and confusion. And so it was really just George walking around like, just kind of dancing around and Thumposaurus like playing the bass and us just kind of trying to figure out what the hell to do. <laughs> so yeah, well, I don't think we ever really, we, we were just messing around. We never really came up with anything. Any, any, any regrets? Like maybe you could have got his, his cell phone number. So maybe he could have jumped on a song or two in the future. Yeah, seriously. We were just so in awe at the time. I just, I remember shaking his hand and his hand was like the thickest, like, roughest hand i'd ever shaken <laughs> that's funny so well so if if i ask yeah. you about artists that shape your sound the low-hanging fruit would be like parliament and zap and coltrane and rick james what, what are some deep cuts maybe an obscure cassette tape your brother had and completely blew your socks off the old tapes that we would bump was like crisscross mc hammer stuff like that um but like some of the deeper cuts like some of like herbie hancock um um Roy Ayers, uh stuff like that, uh Entume, um Kashif, um yes, yeah, stuff like that, like the like jazz fusion um stuff. So when you when you combine let's say you combine your love of hip hop and some of those deep cuts, you know, fifteen years ago Snoop Dogg on sexual seduction used a talk boxer. What did you, what, what, do you get territorial on that stuff? Did you think like, oh, this is a gimmick? Or did you think it was like real funk? No, I thought it was fresh, man. I don't think it's, ex I think he's just using auto-tune. I don't think it's an actual talk box. In the video, he has a talk box too. Um, but on the actual recording, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's just auto-tune. But no, I, I mean, how how can you hit on sensual seduction? I mean, it's, it's a, it was huge when it came out. No, I thought it was fresh that, just like choosing that kind of up-tempo sound, like almost like an electro kind of beat. And I, I just always love those chords. I mean, we used to do a cover of that song in Starship Connection. And actually, you do it on TalkBox, um, which was fun. But no, I never I never thought it was gimmicky. I just thought, I mean, it's, it's Snoop. He's, you know, goat, you know. So, pandemic, the lockdown. Does that have a factor in the music with the with the latest album Visions? Not directly. Like it wasn't it wasn't a you know pandemic album. Like I wasn't 
you know, just like, oh, let me be inspired by the pandemic. The pandemic was actually pretty uninspiring for me. It was actually like, I didn't make music for a while. You know, people were like, oh, can't wait to hear all the music that comes out of lockdowns. But it's like, I kind of had the opposite effect on me. I was just not, you know, we were just trying to survive. I was just trying to figure out like how to take care of my family and just what the heck is going on in the world and, you know, all that. 